Welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resiliency looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. Now, this looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resiliency looks like in the lives of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. Today's episode is sponsored by Success Draft, where we help you transform your dreams into drafted plans. Head over to successdraft.com to get started on your future today. This episode's guest is a leadership and executive coach for a company that he founded called Catalytic Leadership. He is an author, coach, student, doctor of the Old Testament, and the lead pastor of Southview Community Church in Herndon, Virginia. Welcome, Dr. William Attaway. How are you doing, sir? Great, Nathan. It's such an honor to be with you today. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely. Hey, folks, listen, we have already been having an amazing conversation just going back and forth between the two of us. He's located up there in Virginia. We spend a lot of time up there. Uh, I, I love it. And he is located really, really close to Dulles Airport. And I told him that if I had actually been up in that area and able to spend all that time at the Smithsonian by Dulles, done. I, I would have no other time on my hands. So before we get started, before we get into the meat of this, let's start with five simple questions. Question number one, and this one's going to be quite easy for you, as I can already see. Who is the greatest superhero of all time? Ah, well, that's easy. It's Superman. Okay, so then why Superman? Of all the other choices out there, you chose Superman. Well, he doesn't dress up like a giant rodent, for one. Um, <laughs> that's 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 a win immediately. Uh, no, I mean, look at look at this guy. This guy's got character like for days. Here's a guy who's going to make the right call, who's going to make the right decision, who's thinking about the good of other people. I love that. Who better? Absolutely, and he can lift a car over his head. I mean, I mean, to boot, even better. amazing. All right, so now a quick follow up to that. What is the greatest movie of all time? Ooh, you know, for me, my favorite movie of all time is an old movie called Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. Wow. Okay. I have not had anything pre-19, probably 85 mentioned oh. on the show. Well, now you have. There you go. And that is a perfect, perfect movie to have on there. All right. So, hey, doctor, I'm giving you two plane tickets. One is to somewhere that you have never been, mm. and the other is to somewhere that you've already been. Mm. Where are these two plane tickets to? You know, the place I've never been is Rome, and I would love to go to Rome. So much history, so much archaeology. I would love to go there and just spend a week or 10 days and walk around the city. Now, you said that one of your, or at least in your bio that I read, uh, archaeology was one of your specific areas of study. Is that correct? Yeah, my PhD is in Old Testament studies, uh, but my, my focus, my emphasis was on biblical backgrounds and archaeology, the culture, the geography, the, the historical background. Oh, wow. And so Rome would actually be the absolute best place to be able to travel well, next to Jerusalem. Been there. Love that. 
take ah. there. Yeah, I love doing that. I love seeing people experience the world of the Bible. That's that's fun. Never well, been to Rome though. When I retire, that is actually going to be the trip that I take my wife on is to Jerusalem. So come with me. It'll be fun. There you go. Now, where would you go somewhere that you've already been? Ah, you know, one of the prettiest places that I have ever seen, it's a place I'd love to take my wife to. It's in the northeast part of England. It's a little fishing village called Whitby. It's on the North Sea. And it is truly, it's just gorgeous. It's it's just a beautiful place. There's the ruins of an abbey up on the hill. There's a fishing village below that. And then there's the North Sea. And it's just got some of the best fish and chips you'll ever put in your mouth. Oh, and I can see the smile on your face as you were talking about that. So I don't know if it was the memory that you have with the wife there or the fish and chips, but just me, but I'd love to take her one day, one day. <laughs> Perfect. All right. What is one thing that is inside of your online shopping cart that you just haven't bought yet? Ooh, hmm. man. You know, <laughs> I have so many books. <laughs> There's so many books that I want to read that I have not bought yet. Please don't ask me to pick one. There, there are some. I've probably got three or four hundred books in my Amazon wish list. Oh wow! I know. It's I have a, I have a book problem. I know. <laughs> well, and if you could see the background here, you would definitely see there is a lot of books on your bookshelf. I know, and there's no more room. I gotta. Get, I have to keep getting rid of some before, and that's like getting rid of a friend. Like, see, um, and don't say that. There's always more room. <laughs> you just got. You just got to do that double decker thing. You know. There you go. There you go. All right. Final question. <laughs> what is one thing that you find repulsive? Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Salad dressing. Or really, condiments of any kind. Honestly. Mm -hmm. Really? I know. It's the texture. It's, it's the squishy. Uh, you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for these very honest answers. I really do appreciate it because I, I just ate a hamburger earlier and I don't know what that would have tasted like without ketchup on it. So, oh no, just a little, a little cheese, a little bacon. You're good. Ooh, bacon. Very good. Some there people, go. there you go. All right. Hey, Dr. Attaway, just why don't you just walk us through your background, kind of uh, where you've come from, your college story, or, or wherever you want to start, kind of bring us up to, to Catholic leadership. Sure. So, uh, you know, I think my story, I would start when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was in high school, and I had a teacher who saw something in me that I did not recognize in myself. And he invited me to attend a leadership conference. And I went, it was out of state, it was up in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I'm from uh, Alabama, originally from Birmingham. And I went to that conference and I was absolutely captivated with the stories of the leaders that I heard about and read about there. And that, that moment, that's, that's, that's a catalytic moment in my story because that's when I became a student of leadership. Uh, you know, I've been a student of leadership since. I read as much as I can about as many leaders as I can. I meet with as many leaders as I can to learn from them. I can't tell you how many breakfast, lunches, and dinners I bought, like just trying to pick people's brains, you know, always come with questions, always come honoring their time and just trying to learn from people who are farther down the road than you are. So that's, that's, that's the moment at which that began. So that has been a, a major theme of my life. I went to college as a pharmacy major. 
I had worked in a pharmacy in high school and thought this was a great way to help people. So I, I went as a pharmacy major. I went through chemistry and then inorganic chemistry and got to organic and decided, you know, this is this is really not what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. <laughs> those those chicken wire diagrams just will haunt you in your sleep. But Again, there's no such thing as a wasted experience. God never wastes an experience. It was, it was during my brief chemistry studies that I was introduced to the idea of what a catalyst was. A catalyst is something that you add to a mixture that will incite or will accelerate significant change. And, and over time, as I began to see and learn more about what leadership was and what great leaders, what distinguished great leaders from your average leaders, what I found is that every great leader in every field was catalytic. They saw a picture of what could be and what should be, and they worked to make that become a reality. They wanted to see significant change, and they wanted to be an agent that would accelerate or incite that change to see what could be become a reality. And, and that's that's where that's the, the germ of the idea that ultimately became the company that I founded, Catalytic Leadership. What does it mean for a leader to be catalytic? In the, in the intervening years, I've worked for over 25 years in local church ministry. I worked in the business world uh, before that, you know, working for a telecommunications provider in the Southeast in the early days of wireless. Uh, and in, for the last four years, I've worked as a coach in the company that I started in addition to the work I do in the local church, coaching leaders, helping leaders to intentionally grow and thrive. Wow. Wow, absolutely amazing. Just to think that that experience as a 15 year old at a, you know, some, somebody looking into you and, and seeing more than you saw in yourself. Uh, I think of it kind of like intimacy mm -hmm. into me, yeah. you see, yeah. you know, and, and just so to good. grab onto that. That's awesome to have an, a grand experience. So, how did that kind of form your leadership philosophy? What is your leadership philosophy as far as, you know, from the church to the, the one-on-one -on -one coaching that you do now. You know, John Maxwell says so well that leadership, simply put, is influence. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. I, I would agree with that. And my philosophy on what a leader is comes down to this. Leaders often are thought of as people who get things done. And I think that's an incomplete idea. I believe leaders are people who get things done through other people, not by manipulating them, but by inspiring them and challenging them and equipping them. I think the job of a leader is to invest in the people that they lead, to pour into them and to draw out of them more than they might even think they have in them. Mm, you know, that's, that's a huge thing that we see in the, uh, in the military system is that too often we treat our airmen, we treat our younger military members the way that we were treated, yeah. the way that we handled situations. And I think that they've been held down for so long and they have such great ideas waiting to just come out. But because we, the older generation, have held our ground on the way that we were taught, mm -hmm. that we force that down upon them. And, you know, that's not an uncommon thing. That's not just endemic to the military. You know, the military leaders I've coached, I've heard that. The business leaders I've coached, I've heard that because what did they do but try to lead the same way they were led, right? We all, I think, at, at, at a certain point when we're young leaders, want to emulate the leaders that we admire, we respect, and we try to lead like them. Problem is when we get stuck there. 
And when we don't understand our own wiring and lead out of that, instead of trying to be a bad copy of a great leader. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And, and it's so amazing. But how, what's the difference that you have seen between church leadership mm-hmm. to business leadership? Is, is there much of a difference between the two? Sure. I think, I think the, the immediate one is that in business leadership, you have something, you have a point of leverage, <laughs> right? Their paycheck. <laughs> um, Very that, true. that is not true in church leadership, really. Mm. You know, maybe with your immediate paid staff, but they're, they're usually not a ton of those. The vast majority of the people that you lead are there by choice. They choose to be there. They're mm. volunteers. Uh, you don't have a paycheck to leverage. So how then do you lead? You have to lead in an inspirational way. You have to lead in a way that you're inviting them to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's far, far greater of an incentive than a paycheck could ever be. Wow, absolutely. And and I think that there's a, a fine balance between the two, especially when you work somewhere where you're trying to be the inspirational leader to, to push past a lot of those things mm-hmm. and actually genuinely care. I tell my staff all the time, I can't tell you how to care, but I can show you how to care. Yes. And that's that's a big thing with, with us as well in, in my schoolhouse that I teach at. So getting to the meat of what this podcast is all about, can you define for us what it means spiritual resilience. I would define spiritual resilience as the ability to deal with in a healthy way what comes your way. And and that's going to look different depending on the situation that you're in. Too often, I think we try to handle things in our own strength and in our own power. And this is where spiritual resilience is going to be a little different from other types. As followers of Jesus, we know that the battle is not ours to be won in our own strength. In fact, in our own strength, we can't, right? We will fail every time. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where the victory is found. This is where true resilience is found. In my own life, it's so evident in so many times when I try to, to take care, oh, I can handle this myself. I can handle this myself. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what happens most of the time? <laughs> it doesn't go well, Right. But it's when I remember what the Apostle Paul said, you know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when I lean into his power and his grace, his ability, that that is when I find the victory that I seek. And I think that that's a huge thing within teams, within Mm -hmm. teams, when you lean into somebody else's strength where you're weak, that's when a team really starts to form. So you go through those, those, you know teaming stages, those forming stages, uh, you really start to see that whenever somebody is humble enough yes. to step back and allow somebody else's strengths to push, push per, to propel the team forward, that's where you start to see real growth and in, in, in education. Absolutely. I mean, you think about this in terms of spiritual gifts, right? The idea that one person has all the spiritual gifts is ludicrous, unless your name is Jesus. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Nobody has all the spiritual gifts, right? I have three. That's it. Like the others don't even register if you take an inventory. Okay. That's it. So if you need somebody that has one of the other couple dozen gifts, don't come to me because I don't have that. But if I'm building a team, a community of people that are working together to accomplish the mission, leveraging all of our strengths, well, guess what? There's a far greater likelihood that all of the gifts are going to be represented as part of a team. This is why team-based leadership is the way to go and the way we lead in the local church. This is why Paul, when he would go around to the churches, he would appoint elders, 
plural, in every church. Why? Because one person doesn't have all the gifts. It takes mm. a team. It takes community. And if you're not operating in team-based leadership, you are missing the boat. So how do you develop spiritual resiliency within your own individual life? And part of it is the people that you spend time with. Part of it is the community that you build for yourself. And this is this is where you find things such as the encouragement. But think about the one another's that are listed in scripture, right? We call to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to bear with one another, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's only done in community. You can't do all that by yourself. So in order to be resilient myself, I've got to have a group of people around me that I'm pouring into and they're pouring into me, that I'm challenging and they're challenging me. I've got to have the transparency with other people that they will call out when they see something that's not lining up with what Scripture says. That's how I'm going to stay in a place where I'm anchored to Jesus, where I'm operating in the Spirit. It's by the people that I spend time with. It's the environments that I spend time with. I read a quote the other day I really liked. In order to become the people of God, we have to gather with the people of God. And in so doing, we are shaped as the people of God. And I love that because it has to do with the environments that we put ourselves in, right? The environments we're in matter. And if we don't think that, just think about the last time you were in an environment that was unhealthy, that was ungodly. Did that draw you in and make you want to be more godly or did it make you want to be less? The environments we're in matter. The people around us matter. And those affect our individual, our personal resiliency far more than most of us would like to admit. Mm, so much on that influential side. So, yes. you know, we influence each other, even good and bad ways yes. we can influence each other. Yes. Now, what about your family? I know that you, you have a wife, you have a couple of kids. How do you build spiritual resiliency within your family environment? I think it has to do with the conversations that you have. Not the ones that you plan that everybody sits down with their textbooks open and everybody's taking notes. This is not family life, at least not in my family. Maybe yours, I don't know, but that's not how that works. It's the conversations that you have as you do life. And I think about what, what Moses wrote down in, in, like in Deuteronomy 6, when he said, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he talks about how we pass this down to the next generation, right? Talk about these things, right? Talk about them when you, when you get up and when you go to bed. Talk about them when you're on the way, as you're walking down the road. Yeah, let's do that. That's how you do it. The car conversations that we have with our kids as we're on the way to, to soccer practice or volleyball practice or camp, those are the conversations that make a difference. The conversations that you have around the dinner table are more important than most people would ever give credit to. There's a reason why deep conversations happen over a meal. That's always been true throughout recorded history. Whenever people ratified a covenant in antiquity in the ancient Near East, it always concluded, the ratification ceremony always concluded with a meal that they would share together. Because the people that you eat with are people that you accept. And this is why Jesus took such heat for the people that he ate with. Because they're like, how could you accept people like that? How could you do that? Well, the conversations we have over meals are some of the weightiest conversations we will ever have, even though at the moment we couldn't possibly think so. Wow. I just, wow. <laughs> We've been making up a lot of time with our son. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we adopted him at age 11. Mm-hmm. And so each, each meal is a different conversation. And I actually noticed if you think about the psychological drift of yeah. once you start a little bit and how, how it just starts to kind of slide down, you know, we started having meals around the, the kitchen table and then we yeah. started having meals inside the kitchen. And then we kind of gradually have moved to the living room. Yeah. And it was like, it was like all of a sudden there was a snap where it's like, Oh, I, we need to pull it back. We, we're not talking the same way as we used to. Some, some of the greatest conversations I've had with my son were over lyrics in the, yeah. in the truck as we're driving. As you're going on the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was one of the greatest conversations that we'd ever had was av- over a song by the artist NF, right? Because <laughs> my son's story and NF story match up so true wow. to each other in, in what happened. And there's a lot of stuff I didn't know until we had that conversation because we were listening to a song that we both connected to. There you go. Just absolutely amazing conversation. That. So now... Here's what I'm kind of wondering. How do you have or develop spiritual resiliency within your team as a lead pastor, but then also at Catalytic, where I'm I'm thinking of a church is somewhere where there's really good spiritual resilience because what do you do? You you preach it, you teach it, you live it. So how do you build it amongst your team? I think one way to do that is to talk about it. And, and this is in, in the one-on-ones that I have. I have one-on-ones with all my direct reports every week, right? And in these one-on-one conversations, I tell them, this is, this is their time. I want you to bring the agenda. This is, you have my undivided attention. Let's talk. It's an opportunity for me to invest in them, to pour into them, to coach them. And as, as we're doing that, I'm asking a whole lot of questions, trying to learn more about them, not in vir- by virtue of what they do, not, not as a cog in the machine, but as a 3D human being made in the image of God, the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations, where do you want to be in 10 years? You know, these type of conversations, these are the things we talk about because that lets them know that they matter beyond just what they do, right? It's in the context of those conversations that we build a, 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 a relational resilience that enables us to have conversations about difficult things because they know that they matter, not just for what they do, right or wrong, but they matter because they're their creation made in the image of God and they matter to God and they matter to me. So that's part of it. I think that's part of how we build resiliency. We, we talk about it, right? We build that relational resiliency before we need it so that when we do need it, we have the ability to weather it. I, I think another way is we think in terms of a team dynamic. We think in terms of the strength of our team. What can we do to come tighter, to become tighter as a team, to get closer? Right. And so there's things that we'll, we'll spend time together. Sometimes we just have a meal together with no agenda. We're just going to have a meal together and we're going to laugh and we're going to talk and we're going to talk about what, you know, what's the last movie you saw that was great or what, what you've been watching, you know, binging on Netflix or, or, you know, whatever. We're just going to talk as people do again, building that relational thing, but this time, not just one-on-one, but as a team so that when there is a challenge and there, there always are challenges with any team, when there is a challenge, we have the freedom to go to one another instead of talk about one another. We have the freedom to go to one another and say, hey, you know, hey, I, I don't know if you meant it this way, but this is how this came across. Can we talk about this? Because you've talked about other stuff and you've talked at a, at a deeper level about different things. 
that enables us to have difficult conversations. So often I think resiliency comes from the ability to have difficult conversations when it comes to a team. Uh, too many teams are afraid of difficult conversations. They think that they are, uh, they're, they're stress producing or stress inducing. Uh, you know, we, oh, I can't have that. We got to avoid that. We got, and, and the, the principle of avoidance becomes gospel. You know, Jesus wow. never shot away from a difficult conversation. And there's been so much good written about this, about the difficult conversations that we all need to, to learn to have inside our homes, inside our workplace, in our churches, right? Too often at church, we think niceness is a fruit of the spirit. You just got to be nice. Just to be nice to everybody. Okay. Oh, man, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I've looked at the fruits of the spirit list, and I'm just going to tell you, niceness is not there, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the ability for, for us to talk with one another and be honest with one another and speak the truth to one another in love, I've read that somewhere, that is in there. That's listed as one of the things that followers of Jesus are called to do inside the community of faith. I, I love that aspect. Niceness is not a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> and I think that niceness and kindness get mixed up. Yes, they do. I think that I yes. think that's where that mix is. Yep. Absolutely. Now, now I love, I love, you know, at, at my church, I have ran the, the volunteer program, 300 volunteers mm-hmm. uh, for the past three years. And, and I love it because I tell everybody that it's relationship. Yeah. Relationship is where a lot of this healing is going to come from. You're going to notice over a period of time, you're going to start to see things in people mm-hmm. and you're going to be able to tell when they're off. Yes, yes. And you need to be that frontline pastor who's who's stepping in and engaging with them. And just if you need to step off to the side and have that conversation, do it. Absolutely. Pull, pull them over to the side. Yes. Hey, Take the initiative, doing? right? Exactly. Because you know what? The, the, the church is going to be a hospital when it needs to be. It's a morgue when it needs to be. It's 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 every it's a school when you need it to be. It is whatever is needed in that moment because that's how it was designed. Yes. Community, relationship. Well, it's like now, Jeff Henderson says we are for one another. Oh, right? Yeah. If we are communicating that, then we can have those difficult conversations. We can speak the truth in love. We can go and have that that difficult thing and say, "Hey, I'm, I'm seeing something here." Because they know we are for them, not against them. Mm-hmm. Just like we know God is for us, not against us. And, and it's really hard, though, sometimes to be able to take a, and build that kind of relationship in a very small yeah. amount of time, which yeah. is, which is it's good if you're, if you're able to take it over a span of time, over a mm-hmm. period of time, and be able to do that. But when you don't have the ability to do that, it's right. those short interactions that you have with somebody that's going to either set up a a conversation or it's going to set up, you know, shying away and staying away from that conversation. That's right. And it's what you do in that short period. I've had people of different faiths and some people not of faith on this show and been able to have a good conversation because I, I do just that. I have a conversation with them. I talk, I don't go into it demeaning them. Exactly. Exactly. So now how do you transcend that over into Catholic leadership, like how, how does that resiliency go to that teamwork between you and one other person or however you have it structured? You know, one of the things that I try to do through the one-on-one coaching that, that I do through Catalytic is first to help a leader understand I'm for you, okay? You're not going to find a bigger cheerleader for you than I'm going to be. I want you to succeed. I want you to intentionally grow and thrive in every area of your life. 
That means I'm going to speak truth to you. That means I'm going to call out stuff. That means I'm going to call out things that maybe nobody else in your world is going to call out because that's what I do. That's what a coach does. A coach is somebody who is from the outside perspective, seeing what you might not see simply because you can't see the whole picture when you're in the frame. I'm on the outside. I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to listen and look for things that you simply might not have the ability to see until someone helps you see it. Once you see it, you can address it. But as one study I read showed that that leaders have an average of 3.4 blind spots. You know, the the thing about a blind spot, you don't know you have it, Mm. but everybody around you does. Well, and I guess that's the difference between a mentor and a coach. A mentor, it seems, is, is, you know, the crowd, you know, gets you going wild and whatnot. And a coach, they're going to discipline you when you need it. Sure. And when you... When somebody hires you, if you go into that with that expectation, what can they do about it? They they hired you for that specific reason. Well, the the fact is, you know, most of my clients would would get to a point in their leadership where, you know, wherever that level is, they feel like they get stuck. And what has worked up to this point stops working and they don't know why. And so they will hire me to come and help them. And I meet with them several times a month. And we talk and we ask questions. And and over time, it becomes clear what it is that's holding them back. And most often, it's a limiting belief in their own life. It's something internally Mm. that is keeping them from taking the next steps that they need to take, but they can't see it because they're in it. Mm. Mm. And it's over their head at that point. Mm -hmm. So let's put legs to this Mm -hmm. conversation. Let's let's put legs to this, as I say. Yeah. Give us a situation that you have been through, that you've experienced, where you had to rely on that spiritual pillar, where you had to rely on that spiritual resilience in order to be able to make it through a tough mm-hmm. situation. Give us, give us an example from your life. You know, quite a few years ago now, uh, there was a situation uh, in, in at a church that I was serving where... Uh, there became a, a clear lack of alignment with one of our leaders. And this leader uh, expressed that lack of alignment and we talked about it. And then we took this before the elders and said, hey, we need you to, to examine this, which they did. And ultimately they, they unanimously said, hey, we think you're off base to this guy. And, and this was, this was a, a very, very difficult season because not only did this person leave the church, but about 40% of the church left with him over the next six months. Because what happens is when there's a lack of alignment, particularly around theology, when there's a lack of alignment, it very rarely stays contained. It, it almost always spreads. And that's what happened. And, and, so many of the people who who ended up walking away did not walk away because they understood what was going on. They just heard a piece of it. That was one of the most difficult times in my ministry career because there are certain things that you simply can't speak to outside of the confidentiality that you hold with people. And you just have to let people make assumptions. And you have to let them walk away. That was difficult for me. And what I wanted to do is stand up and scream and yell and say, but you don't know the whole story. Let me tell you all of it. (laughs) You can't do that. You're you're standing in your own defense at that point. And and this was a point at at which I had to learn what it means 
to let God be your defender and stop trying to do it in my own strength, but lean into his. That created a resilience in me that was so much stronger than what I had prior to that. It took two years. That was Mm. a two-year process for me to get to that point. A whole lot of conversations with a counselor, a whole lot of conversations with friends around me. But that's how I got to that point was through going through one of the most difficult seasons in my career on a personal level. You know, three years ago, almost three or three and a half years ago now, uh, my older daughter started having headaches. And uh, we thought maybe she's developing migraines like I did at that age. Um, After multiple visits to the doctor, we ultimately got some MRI scans and it turns out there was a brain tumor on the back right side of her brain. Well, that was unexpected. There's no history of that. That's, that didn't see that coming. Uh, they rush her by ambulance to a larger hospital over in Fairfax. And, and two days later, the surgeon takes it out. Two days later, she's home and we wait for the pathology report. Three weeks later, find out that it's a very rare form of cancer. Only about 50 teenagers a year in the world are diagnosed with this. And then we start a journey, right? With treatments and radiation and more doctors that I can tell you about. And, and, and that, was a, that was a season. That was difficult as a parent to watch your kid go through that. I mean, it's one thing for you to go through it, to watch your kid go through it. And there's there's really nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you can't do anything? (laughs) Wow. You develop a resilience through understanding it's not in your strength and understanding that, that though your child is entrusted to you, they're entrusted to you, but they are ultimately God's. That develops a resiliency over time. Now, at the end of that story is three plus years later, she's doing great. And she just graduated high school. There's not been a recurrence of the cancer and she's heading to college in a few weeks. That's exciting. Um, and that's a testimony to, to God's grace. But I tell you those two stories because both of them developed resilience in me that I would not have had apart from going through those seasons. I would not have chosen either of them. In mm. fact, had I known either of them were ahead, I would have run the other direction as fast and as far as possible. Uh, would, would have strayed uh, Nineveh that, huh? Yeah, <laughs> where, where, where is the boat? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what do you do as a pastor? You're in that situation where you have literally the stresses of the world coming down upon you and, and you, you reach out. You, you, you reach out to God, you cry out, but what do you do? Who do you talk to? So how do you deal with those types of things? How do you work through them? Who do you talk to? You know, it's, it's funny because if you're in vocational ministry, you know that people will often bring their challenges, their stories, their problems to you, and they'll kind of dump them at your door. And then they drive off and they feel better. <laughs> but, but what do you do with all that? I heard somebody say years ago that if you are a leader and you don't have a counselor that you're seeing regularly to process this sort of stuff, uh, you're crazy. <laughs> and, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I think that, that as a leader, one of our responsibilities is to stay in an emotionally healthy place. And that involves people that we trust that we can go to. I have a counselor that I've seen for the last seven years. This is somebody that I go to, that I process with, and that helps me see what I can't see, right? I have a leadership coach that I've engaged for a number of years now 
who helps me to see, again, what I can't see, who I can go to with challenges and problems that I'm wrestling through. Somebody who is a trusted resource, who has been there and will help me process those things. I have close friends that I can go to and share deep things with who will help me by listening, asking the right questions, and pointing me to Scripture. This is the community that I have built to help me process what goes on in my world. I think every leader needs a community like that. This doesn't have to be 15 or 20 people, and it may not be people in your organization. None of the people that I just listed are in the organization, the church where I lead. They're all outside, but they are trusted people that I go to, that I trust, and that will speak the truth in love. And I think that's so value added because I think that too often we think that we're in positions where mental health is not, is cliche. It's, it's yeah. nothing that you can talk about. It, it has to be that, that hidden thing. But when you vocalize it and you say it, there's so much more in that. And to have that community around you is so important. Well, if mental health is like physical health is like emotional health is like spiritual health. They all matter. And you yeah. are an integrated creation of God. And what goes wrong in one of those areas is going to touch every other area eventually. Which is something I think that we have forgotten about in resiliency is that all of these pillars are connected in yes. a lot of ways. Like if I need to go for a run, that's going to be physical, but it's mm -hmm. also a mental release as well. Yeah. Or it's a time I can use to pray to God and and to, to have that conversation that I need to have there. So they are interconnected in such a way that when one is affected, mm -hmm. all of them are affected. That's it. I'll often use the illustration of those plates that I like at Thanksgiving that have the little compartments, the partitions, right? So your food doesn't touch one another. I love those because I don't want my food to, to touch. <laughs> I think each food has its own flavor and I want to enjoy that flavor as it was intended. And as long as there's not any condiments, then we're all good. See, the problem is, is we inherited, I think from the, from the Greeks, this idea that your life is like that, that your life is compartmented. And, and you know, what happens at home really doesn't affect what happens at work. And what happens at church really doesn't affect what happens in any other part of your life. Guess what? <laughs> That's a beautiful myth. It is not true. The fact is every part of your life touches every other part of your life. And you can try to keep those walls up as long as you want. But what I've discovered in, in my life and the life of the leaders that I've coached and people that I've led is that those walls come down. They mm. are paper thin. Mm. Wow. There is so much truth. So much truth in that. I, I am very grateful for you, Dr. Attaway. You, you have brought a fresh perspective to a lot of these things. And, and there's things that we hear all the time, but you have a way of saying it that just kind of resonates and kind of, mm. kind of hugs onto that side. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you came to talk to us today. As a man who reads a lot and really engages in that, do you have any book recommendations besides your book, Catalytic Leadership, <laughs> that you would like to present as good information for us to retain? I'll give you two. One is, uh, I think, my favorite book outside of, of the obligatory scripture, right? Uh, and that is The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a long book. It's over a thousand pages. But I have really never read another book that captures so much of the human experience and so much of the danger 
of unforgiveness and the power of grace. It is not written from a faith perspective, but the spiritual lessons in that book are everywhere. Uh, it's, it's my favorite book. Wow. I've read that multiple times. I read it every couple of years because it's just such a beautiful work of literature and it conveys so much truth. So that's one, The Count of Monte Cristo on the, on the fictional side. On the non-fictional side, there, there are so, so many great books. Um, I think I would I would have to put near the top of the list Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, one of the first books I ever read on leadership. And it, it really captivated me because Maxwell has a way of, of really boiling things down and putting the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can reach them. And I appreciate that. I think too often we want to talk in a, in, a, in a lofty way. And the more educated we are, the bigger words we use. And the problem is if, if we're not making information accessible, if we're not making truth accessible to everybody, what mm-hmm. value is it? Well, we and I think simple. Yeah. As, as a pastor, I think he just has a, a way of putting, yeah. you know, word pictures together to, to show that, that truth and those yes. truths that he have. I, I am beyond grateful for you to, to take this time. You you're doing this at night, you're doing this in the evening time. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you to take the time. Actually, we were supposed to meet a couple of weeks ago and then something fell through. So we're now meeting tonight. Uh, do you have any final words, how we can get a hold of your book, how uh, we can get a hold of you and your website, your company? Sure. You can find me at uh, catalyticleadership.net. That's where you can get information about the, the coaching services that I provide. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for William Attaway. And you'll find me there and you'll see things that I post often about what I'm learning, things that, that I'm encountering and, and processing. And I would love to, to make your listeners an offer. My goal in writing this book was to capture the principles that I've seen to be true about leadership, about truly catalytic leadership, no matter what field you're in, from the military leaders I've coached to the business leaders I've coached, from the C-suite to educators, from founders to entrepreneurs, you know, these principles are transferable. And what I tried to do is capture 12 of these that no matter your field are things that you can apply today, things that are very practical. I wrote it as though we're sitting across the table having coffee. And my goal is to get this into as many leaders' hands as I can. And so I would love to, to make an offer to your listeners that if you go to catalyticleadershipbook.com, I'll give you the book for free. All you have to do is pay the shipping cost and we'll get a paper copy of that right out to you. Oh, wow. Absolutely. We are grateful. And we will have the link, both of those links in the comment section below. Uh, Dr. Attaway, thank you again so much for taking the time to converse with us, to to pour in and invest in us, the listeners. Uh, We are so grateful today's episode. Today's episode is only possible Thanks to my friend and producer, G. Frazier with 369design.com. Jeff, you understand more than anyone how difficult these microphones can be. And when they don't work, I sound horrible. But you, my friend, somehow always make me sound good, no matter the situation. Uh, We are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. We will see you next week. Be blessed.